Let's get freaky. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. A mini RF modulator. I'm a freak. I'm a weirdo. Atari is back. Again. And the Mega 65 settles out. All this, plus our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, if there's one thing that our subreddit users never tire of, it's many consoles. Oh, yeah. Every time one is released, it's always one of our most upvoted stories on Reddit. Why do you think that is? Oh, I don't know, John, but I think mini consoles is the con- is the content that our listeners crave. It's what they tune in for. <laughs> you know, I- I'm almost at the point now of thinking we should rename the podcast uh, and just dedicate it to nothing but, you know, mini consoles. This week in mini consoles, that's what we Maybe are. Maybe so. <laughs> <laughs> well, for all lovers of gaming in miniature, this is your week because uh, we've got a-, a big story coming up here. Now, just to set this up, One thing most gamers of a certain age have in common is memories of not only their favorite console, but the television set it was connected to. Now, Neil, I know you've mentioned Big Telly before, but as we all know, that was only put into use for gaming on special occasions. Um, What was your daily driver CRT you used for computing back in the day? Oh, you can't mention Big Telly and not have me talk about Big Telly. I love Big Telly. Um, Big Telly was very much an 80s and 90s thing, early 90s thing, because when I went into my PC owning days, I did have a dedicated PC monitor. Um, In fact, in my earliest days, I had a dedicated monitor because I had the Amstrad CPC, which came with a monitor. That was one of the big attractions of it. But in that middle period, in my Amiga owning days, uh, for my Amiga, I had a Matsui 14-inch portable TV. Have you ever heard of Matsui? Mm. No, no, never. No, I'm not surprised. It was an own brand uh, that was sold by the Dixons group on the high street. So Curry's, Dixons, places like that here in the UK. Mm-hmm. And they chose to use the name Matsui for their own brand because they saw, they thought it sounded nice and a bit mystical and foreign sounding. They wanted it to sound Japanese. A common marketing ploy. haagen is the same thing. Yeah, right. Exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get that over here. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, they also had a similar brand called um, Seisho or Seisho, however you pronounce that one. I can't remember now, but for exactly the same reasons. So they were piggybacking on the advanced manufacturing capabilities that we knew Japanese electronics uh, manufacturers had in the day, the reliability that we associated with them then. And uh, a funny sounding name was all the fashion. So my daily driver on my Amiga was a Matsui CRT, 14-inch one. And then downstairs, of course, we had Big Telly. And uh, we had <laughs> two distinct Big Tellys that I can think of. The first was a really classic 70s-looking beast with a wooden case. And it had the chunky pop-in-and-out radio buttons on the front. Oh, yeah. I think we had four, which was a luxury, because before whatever date Channel 4 came around, we just had the three channels. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't ever remember two channels. I'm not that old, but I remember three and then four channels, um, on the front there. And then my dad upgraded to a 21 inch. It was a Mitsubishi TV and it was plastic and it was black and it looked like the future. None of this wood grain mm. nonsense. And, right. um, crucially I had a scart socket, which I thought was amazing. So, you know, the Amiga looked incredible when I went from the RGB out to the scart socket instead of using RF as I had done before. And I've just got great memories. I won't go into detail because I've talked about it on the show before, but really fond memories of Saturday daytime kickoff two tournaments on big telly with my brother. Um, It felt like we were peak gaming back then. You know, we had everything. We had the 21-inch telly. We had a cutting-edge Amiga, two-player football game. I wanted for nothing, John. It was great times on big telly. (laughs) So, um, but, you know, if we we go across the pond to you, we always got to watch American sitcoms where everyone had a 50-foot cable on their telephone. The telephone was on the wall in the kitchen. You could walk around the entire house with the cable following you. You had that, right? You must have done. 
we did not but that is not just a that is not just a tv thing i did know people that did have 50 foot cables on their phone i don't know why people always insisted on i guess when the house was built that was where the phone was decided to be put in because you you couldn't choose where to put the jack but everybody had a phone in their kitchen okay lots of people did have those giant cables they would walk into the bathroom you know talking on the phone it was you have your your, yeah it's just the way it was neil i'm thinking about roseanne in particular they were always on the on the phone with the great big cable walking around the house um and then also everyone in america according to the the stereotype that i watched on the telly had a big telly bigger bigger than my big telly we're talking enormous telly (laughs) does that fit the stereotype Lots of people, I don't know if you know this about Americans, Neil, but we are fond of the old television oh, yeah. here in this country. <laughs> um, we, I, you know, in, in my house, uh, we had, I think it was a, a 32 inch television growing up for the majority of, of my youth, uh, elementary school age. Uh, and uh, we had an older one. Uh, that I think my mom picked up at a garage sale. It was also a 32 inch TV, but this thing was, I mean, it was right out of your late seventies, early eighties marketing material. It looked, it was made to look like a piece of furniture. So it had the brass handles on the bottom that made you think there were drawers under it. But, uh, those of course were just for show that actually really annoyed me because there was all kinds of room in the body of this thing. You could have put real drawers in there. That would have been a perfect place to store games and controllers and stuff in. But anyway, we used that TV until the tube was so dim, it was hardly visible anymore. And there was, um, there was course, a tube, was there? This wasn't rear projection. This was No, DLT. no, this was a tube. Well, we never had a rear projection TV, although I did have friends that had them and they were so massive. And it's so funny to think about today. Uh, those rear projection televisions are pretty much the default size of a normal flat screen True. TV, but yeah. because because of the girth that were needed, I mean, when you got rid of one of these things, it was like burying a family member in terms of you know the uh, the the amount of weight and heft that this thing <laughs> occupied in your house. Um, but you know, these days TVs are so cheap, they're so replaceable. I, I don't think that today's gamers will form the same attachment but for classic gamers uh these memories are real and and that's why i think this particular mini console will be a big hit you know this really isn't a mini console at all i think we've delved fully into micro territory uh, it's it's super impulse is the manufacturer they've they've made their business producing uh soda can arcade uh soda can size arcade machine replicas and they've turned their attention to the home market console for the first time and they've produced a, a fully working finger length sized atari 2600 so Hold out your pointer finger. That's as big as this thing is. Uh, It's bundled with Pac-Man, Combat, Asteroids, Warlords, uh, Centipede, Breakout, Tempest, Missile Command, Millipede, and Pong. So lots of Atari 2600 classics. Now keep in mind, these are all the 2600 versions of these games. So Pac-Man will look just as much a flickery mess as you I was going to say, I was going to say, you're not selling it to me with Pac-Man. The first game that you mentioned, why would I want that? <laughs> right, right. But that's not all, Neil. As part of the bundle, they've also included a period-correct miniature television set, uh, complete with aerial antenna, and get ready for this, a mini RF modulator. <laughs> Are you ready for a micro RF modulator in your life, Neil? Oh, wow. I mean, we've joked about minis having RF modulators in the past. Uh, is, this, is this an actual working RF modulator, or is this just a, a fun little mock-up? I believe that this is, uh, well, you do have to, I think it connects through the RF modulator. I don't believe that it actually modulates the signal. I don't think you have to mess with any of the tiny screws on the top of your TV (laughs) to get this to work. But I did think that that was, uh, you know, that was a nice realistic touch there. Um, Now, because the tiny, tiny size of everything, the TV screen itself is only 1.5 inches wide. So, I mean, this is an eye strain inducing experience to play this thing, but they did think of making the actual screen inside the plastic TV set tiltable to various angles. So it will make playing it a little bit more comfortable. Uh, But this is definitely something that's going to be more at home on a shelf as a display piece than something you're going to put hours into playing, at least if you value your eyesight. Yeah, it's not the size, is it? It's the angle. Thank goodness they've let you tilt it so you can Mm -hmm. play more comfortably. (laughs) Come on, that's just silly. That's ridiculous. One and a half inches, that to me is, um, it's a a nice display chirruping away uh, on a shelf in the corner of your room. 
you can see it working away. Uh, it's an ornament, basically. Right. But I'm guessing through the RF modulator, which is actually composite or whatever it is, that you can actually plug this thing into a, a full-size telly if you want to. Can you do that? I don't think so, Neil. I, I don't think they built that functionality no. in. Like you said, I think that this is meant to be a, you know, something that you place on the desk in front of you uh, and you flip it on and put on the attract mode for your favorite game. And uh, you just look at it and it makes you feel happy. I think that's okay, the extent fine. of this thing. You, you put your Sylvanian family rabbit in front of the cabinet and or, or mm. the, the console and leave it to play. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to the day in like, 40 years time when I'm an old man older than I am now when you buy the Sunday paper and you get the magazine supplement inside and on the back instead of having the ornamental uh, I don't know royal prince charles plate for sale <laughs> you have like the, the miniature consoles and we yeah. go oh yeah I've got to get that ornament I've got to add that to my collection and we just I get around that, dusting our, think, our mini consoles <laughs> yeah I think we're not far away from that you know I can't imagine the Franklin Mint who is the makers of fine you know ceremonial plates from TV shows <laughs> like Bonanza and Little House on the Prairie I at some point all the people that are into that stuff are going to pass into the into the next life and we'll be left with us and you yeah. know that's and there will be i guarantee you we are going to see things on the scale of your decorative plates uh dedicated to to retro gaming absolutely yeah. if my grandchildren touch my mini outrun they'll be hell to pay <laughs> step away children right so what's the right. damage john how much does this thing cost us well right now the whole piece of kit is going to debut in target stores do you have target in england neil um I want to say yes, but a, a limited number. I'm, I'm really okay. not certain on that. Maybe one of our listeners can tell us. Um, I'm okay. certainly aware of the brand, and mm -hmm. I think, I think like Target might own one of the big stores over here, and they might have Target sections. I don't know. Any okay. listeners out there, tell us, do we have Target in the UK? <laughs> uh, well, they're going to debut in Target stores first starting next month, and they'll retail at $35. Bucks. Um, I'm not going to lie, Neil. I'm kind of tempted by this thing. Uh, $35 bucks is, is not a whole lot. Uh, I love the idea of including a TV in the bundle, and uh, I think it would look great here, right here on the This Week in Retro set right behind me on the uh, Amiga 1000 monitor that's right behind me here. So if you're interested in checking it out, be sure to click the link in the show notes. And thank you to subreddit user Pajaco6502 for sharing the story with us. Okay, John. So the next article that I've picked from our subreddit, it's uh, it's less of a news story and more of um, an opinion piece and a, and a, a thinking exercise, a nostalgic thinking exercise back to our youth. Um, nice chance to reminisce. And it's thanks to listener Reading Glasses Man definitely a listener of ours with a name like that hitting the demographic with his reading glasses on there oh yeah um he refers to a podcast that's called geek uh geek bits podcast geek bits and in that podcast on an episode they discussed their experiences as grown up as kids who were into computers back in the day and um how at high school a high school comprising of about 500 children there were only four or five that they could identify as geeks or nerds and we're into computers like them. And it really got me thinking about my own experiences here in the UK, because while very few of my friends were really, really into computers in the way that I was, they all had exposure in some form or another um, to computers, uh, usually because we had computers in schools, thanks to the computer literacy project that we had here in the 80s. So we had BBC micros in most of our classrooms for people of my generation um they were always around um but that doesn't mean they were all into computers they were just aware and familiar with computers and what they could do so from my own experience at school there were probably only about two or three other kids who i could visit outside of school and properly get geeky with you know the kids that i would sit with and they would show me their 286 and we talk about or well, how have you partitioned your drives you know You've got a four gig limit. Where do you put all your games? How many partitions have you got? How many drives have you got? All of, <laughs> you know, all of this real stuff, talk. you know? Yeah. When did you last defrag? All of that great talk. Yeah. <laughs> I've never even kissed a girl. <laughs> um, so, you know, there were those, and then there were the kids with the, with the master systems and the consoles who, you know, they could be massive gamers into their games, but I wouldn't class them as geeky computer nerds because they weren't, they weren't even thinking about what you could do with a computer. They were just thinking about the, the latest and greatest games. 
And uh, thinking back about all of this stuff, I never really considered myself or this behavior to be weird. Not at all. And then Reading Glasses Man cites his own examples um, on the comments that he left us. Something that he did back in the day was when people were listening to Madonna or Metallica, he was playing tapes of C64 loading screen music that he'd captured and he was just playing them on his hi-fi. Yeah. And um, I thought, yeah, well, you've said yeah. So I, I think you're nodding there as mm-hmm. if that's an experience maybe you had too. I, I, I definitely played tapes of video game music instead of listening to what was popular when I was growing up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking instead of playing, obviously I did play some music, but I would often just let my Amiga play mega demos and blast the music out in my room instead of putting a tape on. And then a little later, I would actually put tapes of those Amiga demos in my car and listen to them when I was first driving in the late 90s. Um, If you haven't listened to the OutRun soundtrack while you're driving along a coast road as the sun sets, then have you even ever driven, John? What you even do? Yeah, <laughs> know. they need to include they need to include that soundtrack with every new vehicle sold. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, but despite these behaviors, I don't ever remember a time where I felt like I needed to hide my geekiness or be ashamed of it in any way, or, or in fear of repercussions for being geeky. You know, for being that classic high school nerd that you see in the films that gets beaten up and has their head flushed down the toilet. Never ever felt any of that at all. Um, so, that, that, you know, it was nice to just spend some time reflecting on my own experiences and, and think back to how I was then. Um, how about you, John? Were you comfortable in yourself with your geekiness? Did you consider yourself to be a weird kid that was into computing? Uh, I considered it to be myself. You know, I, I definitely always considered myself to be a weird kid, uh, for sure. Um, I, uh, But it, it wasn't really because of the gaming aspect, you know. Um, first of all, even though I had, you know, and I'm talking about this is, this is really, um, yeah, pretty much all through um, school until uh, I became immersed in the classic computer scene just a couple of years ago. Uh, I wasn't really that into computers. Uh, I was always one of those console people like you were talking about. Um, you know, I I was into Nintendo, Neil. Uh, I didn't tell anybody I had an Atari computer uh, because nobody cared. Uh, I didn't even care. Uh, Nintendo was life and life was Nintendo and everybody was into it, especially when I was in elementary school, middle school, um, boys, girls, popular kids and popular kids. It was a global phenomenon, the likes of which I don't think we'll ever see again, because it was just such a big thing. And it was the first new thing that really took off in video games uh, for people of my generation. So no, Neil, uh, my geekiness was defined by something else. And that was my love of Star Trek. Uh, it, it may shock you to believe, Neil, that that uh, that when you walk up to somebody and tell them you're real into Star Trek, they don't always greet you with positivity. <laughs> this was <laughs> definitely something something only a few select kids were into and uh those kids were my friends and neil we definitely fit a demographic yeah that is a a stereotype that often fits isn't it the the trekkie the trekkie how far have you gone with your trekkiness have you been to well when i was middle middle school middle school was the height of my trekkiness uh in high school uh i joined the marching band and i i furthered my uh, my geekiness (laughs) education and (laughs) and bona fides by by joining the marching band but when i was in middle school i was part of a star trek club that met in the school library at lunch uh we would each assign each other a role to play you know for example i was a lieutenant commander and uh we would we would act out episodes of the show we would larp in the library neil larping in the library (laughs) So when those worlds collided, video games and Star Trek, as they did so often, that must have blown your mind. That must have. Oh, been. Yeah. yeah. Being able to control these people. Uh, in the, but, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I say that on one hand it was cool. But on the other hand, it made you realize that um, video games could never take the place. And this is why still to this day I enjoy tabletop role playing is that, you know, video games can never beat the you know the theater of the mind especially when you get together with people and and you're you're acting out things you know in in sort of a role-playing scenario uh video games can never approach that but if you're if you're by yourself and you're looking for entertainment then that's yeah that's the way to go Mm. makes me want to go down another avenue of where could video games go if you bought 
AI in that could actually get somewhere close to, as you say, the right. theater of the mind rather yeah. than a linear plot. Uh, where could video games take us? Hmm. Something we might talk about in 40 years' time when it's retro. Maybe it will come yeah. around. <laughs> <laughs> but um, getting back on track, I mean, you meant you described the Nintendo Entertainment System there as being a global phenomenon, um, which it was. I'm not doubting that. But here in the UK, it was popular and it was here. But I only knew one kid with a, with a NES. I definitely mm. knew more people with Nintendo hardware when we came into the Super Nintendo era. Um, but that's just my neighborhood, which isn't a great sample size. So I don't think you can draw uh, <laughs> anything too authoritative from that. Something I have been playing with this week is the ColecoVision from oh, yeah. 1982. And uh, it has really surprised me what a quality console that is. Um, I don't think it, well, it produced a lot of good games, but I don't think it nearly met its um, potential given that it vanished off the back of the video game crash. Well, you that. know, Coleco is, is yet another example of a video game company that put all of its chips in on the let's make a home computer pile. And, um, and that was the death of their company. You know, they were the same company that produced the Cabbage Patch Kids. Were those a thing in England, Neil? Oh, yeah. We had the Cabbage Patch Dolls and also the Garbage Pail Kids. Yeah, yeah. So the Cabbage Patch Kids, they were, they produced some of the earliest sort of, you know, store rushes where people would just, you know, duel to the death to get these things for their kids for Christmas. And so Coleco had all the money in the world. They produced this ColecoVision. They nailed down some great arcade lights licenses some of the best arcade ports you can play on any you know first second gen system are on the ColecoVision and then they went all in and produced this computer called the Atom Neil and the Atom was the death of them because it came along at the same time that the whole crash happened so people gave up sort of hope on uh, these video game systems but at the same time they made some really poor marketing decision or design decisions such as you must have the printer plugged in to use the atom and the power supply is built into the printer so yeah, into the dot yeah. matrix printer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they also pumped a huge amount of money into an add-on for the ColecoVision to turn it into an atom, which never right. really quite worked. So yeah. Um, anyway, we're, we're going off on another tangent here, <laughs> bringing it back into your geekiness, your, your trekkiness, your band camp and everything else. Um, uh, you talked about your love of Nintendo and then, and the NES. How far did that go? Did you ever have a, a Nintendo backpack at school or a cap or anything like that to share your love of Nintendo to the world? Not for lack of trying. Um, <laughs> unlike today, where you can go to any number of stores at the mall and buy you know, Nintendo merchandise. We have a store called Hot Topic here, and all they sell is retro stuff that my students, you know, my students, Neil, were born, my youngest students, I believe, were born in 2005 or 2006, wow. something like that. And um, no, they're much younger than that, actually. Uh, uh, they're, you know, 11 years, yeah, 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 you know. Um, and so, um, no, they were born in like 2008, 2009, because they're like 11 years old. Wow. So um, they the have no, then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they have no recollection of anything related to the 8-bit era, but they continue to wear Nintendo branded stuff, NES branded stuff. This stuff sells like hotcakes, I think, in a lot of the same way that, you know, when we were kids, people would wear Led Zeppelin shirts and stuff like that um yeah. and so uh but when I, when i was growing up nintendo hadn't realized the potential in putting their logo on every conceivable thing at least you know nothing that i ever saw in stores because if i had i would have definitely snapped all that stuff up but yeah. it just didn't exist back then i remember really desiring the uh, the few Psygnosis games that bundled t-shirts like Shadow of the Beast. There was like a deluxe pack with a Shadow of the Beast t-shirt. But I remember thinking, I really want this, but I'd never wear this outside. I would never <laughs> show the world my love of right. Psygnosis and Shadow and of the Beast. You're also rolling the dice. Are you the same size as the t-shirt? Because you don't get a choice. It comes with a bundled t-shirt. And if it doesn't fit you, you're out of luck. You can wear it as sort of, you know, maybe an apron if it's too big or a winter cap if it's too small. Yeah. I would wear it with pride now, but back then I would be far too self-conscious about what people yeah. might think of me. Yeah. So uh, anyway, what I would say then um, was that computing almost felt more accessible to me in the 8-bit era because you were taught what computers were in the classroom and you were taught that they were here to be programmed and programming is how you make computers do things. And, um, you know, we were taught that even as young kids. But when we moved to upper school and computers had... GUIs, flash GUIs and WYSIWYG applications and office applications and all of this stuff, 
any exposure that we had to computers in school became more about the specific task in hand, like learning to use a word processor or a spreadsheet application, rather than learning what a computer is about and, and how it works and what you can do with it. And um, I felt like the, it, it was uncoupled from the wider curriculum. So where in the past we might have used something like Logo to support a maths lesson and do cool programming tasks, um, <clears throat> it just became detached and less cool to my peers and more abstract. You know, you were just word processing, you were just using it as a tool. And I can imagine if I was 10 years younger, um, and maybe this applies to the kids that you teach now, I would have been a lot less inspired by computing in schools and perhaps would never have been quite so inquisitive about their inner workings if it was just all about the applications. Um, you, you have a computer lab in your school. Is that still a thing these days or did the kids just pull out laptops and tablets? Uh, up until the pandemic, we absolutely had computer labs because um, my school district is famous for its thriftiness. And uh, while the neighboring counties uh, received uh, iPads or Chromebooks or laptops of, of different sorts, uh, our county, we just kept going with, with our traditional computer labs. But after the pandemic, when uh, you know virtual learning had to had to appear, lo, uh, the, uh, the the laptops appeared in the hands of the students, uh, and um, so we, we no longer have computer labs, uh, but every student does carry a laptop with them. Uh, I'm fully convinced that 95% of their time on the laptop is uh, spent uh, playing Minecraft because that's the <laughs> game that is installed on all the laptops. Uh, but um, as far as I'm aware. You know, we do have a digital technology class where students are, in theory, you know, shown about, you know, taught about the inner workings of computers and, and introduced to programming and things like that. But I think that um, programming now is more about doing things within existing applications than programming things from scratch. And I think you see that all the way up to the top as you know when we when you have games here you're you're almost always programming in unity rather than design your own engine from the ground up uh, that isn't nearly as common and i think that that trickles all the way down to the student level whether they're designing levels in minecraft or you know roblox and things like that i think that students are still interested in programming and content creation i just think that the way that they go about it is several steps up from creating everything from scratch from you know a text parser yeah and if i take my old man nostalgic hat off it, it has to be that way if you want to achieve the things you want on a modern computer uh, you know flashy graphics and all of the rest of it um there's so there'd be so much involved to program that from scratch that you have to have these um you know these engines to help you and and things like scratch coding where you can just drag and drop drop blocks to, to help you achieve what you want to achieve. Um, yeah, so I, I don't begrudge it. Um, if you look at the, the kids at your school uh, and you think um, about how many kids are really, really into computing, like the real geeky computer nerds who want to stay after school and program and all the rest of it, is it still like four or five kids like it was back in my day? Or do you see more? Uh, well, it's, it's really hard to know because you don't have to go to a specific location to be into that stuff anymore. So it's hard to pin the nerds down. It's harder than it used to be where you could just kind of lurk outside the AV room after school and see who went in. Then you could tell uh, these days uh, it's hard to know who's into anything because as school, as soon as school is over, everybody goes home and they conduct all of their socialization. They conduct all of their, their programming everything that they do is in a virtual environment where everybody is siloed off. And that's just sort of the consequence of number one, the pandemic, but also number two, just how easy it is for everybody to just stay home and, and get, uh, you know, this, the satisfaction that they formerly got doing things in groups with people, uh, doing all those things by themselves now. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd be interested to know, um, your thoughts, uh, Dear listeners, were you geeks? Were you bullied for being into computers? Uh, did the cool kids lock you in the stationery cupboard? Um, <laughs> did you, like me, get blamed when some kid put the, what was it called? The Anarchist's Cookbook. Somebody bought that in oh, yeah. on the school network at one point. And because I was the kid that was into computers, I got the blame. Oh. It took me a long, long time to talk my way out of that because it was nothing to do with me, but... I had the reputation for being the kid that was into computers. 
Can you imagine the trouble that you get into now? I mean, obviously they had no way to tie that to you, but uh, the amount of trouble that you'd get into if you, if, you know, if a student was found with a recipe for bombs and things like that in their locker, it would be a major, major deal here in the United States. Um, of course, back then it was a different time and I'm glad you were able to talk your way out of it, Neil. That's good. Well, it was just deny, deny, deny. It was nothing to right. do with me because it was right. nothing to do with me. But um, yeah, this was a pre 9-11 era. It would be a very different situation now um, if that happened, I'm sure. But um, yeah, leave your comments in the subreddit on the story that's been left by... Um, reading glasses man and also uh, check out the link to geek bits podcast to hear their thoughts and um hear their conversation about the same topic it's been interesting to think about john neil when you think atari 1980 what do you think of oh i think of booming home console sales cutting edge arcade machines just yeah peak atari goodness it's a good time yeah. for them surely me too me too now when you think of atari 2021 what do you think of? <laughs> well, this is quite fresh in my mind because I was on Twitter uh, yesterday. And I don't know if you've noticed at the top of the app now, if um, there are group uh, like live chats happening, suddenly a link appears and you can click on it to listen in. I've, I've only noticed this recently. And there was a live chat happening last night about Atari with Nolan Bushnell in there. And mm. they were talking about NFTs. They were talking about crypto. They were talking about... Um, partitioning uh, famous Atari franchises so that everybody could buy a little piece of it and profit off of it when the next game is made and, and all this stuff. And they were talking about everything except for making games. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that that's what I think about now when I think about Atari. Get your head yeah. back into making games because you're talking about everything but. I mean, has there ever in the history of the world been a video game brand that has just sold itself out as much as atari uh, i mean you've got the atari logo on speaker hats slot machines uh of course we talked about their future hotel chain all the nft stuff it's definitely come a long long way from a simple video game company who was responsible for some of the most visionary games of the early 80s well Atari has a new CEO, Neil, and uh, he wants to change things up a little, and in a good way. Uh, according to a new interview from GamesIndustry.biz, Wade Rosen is looking to pivot Atari away from some of the ventures that some might have say, uh, some might say, have cheapened the Atari brand over the years. Now, John, uh, the irony is not lost on me that just five minutes ago you were telling me that if Nintendo put their logo on everything, you'd be all over that. You'd be buying that. And now you're talking Atari down a little bit, going, oh, Atari, they're putting their logo Listen, on everything. I'm not, saying, <laughs> I'm not saying what they're doing is not a good business decision because obviously, I mean, I own two or three Atari shirts that I bought recently. So, hey, I, I've got nothing against you uh, marketing your brand on non-gaming stuff, but you need to actually support that with the gaming side of things. That's one thing I think Nintendo has done well over the years is that even though you can buy a Nintendo toothbrush and, you know, a Mario toilet paper dispenser, they still are making good games. And that's, yeah. that's, that's the key. Um, so we've, we've got a new CEO then. Is yeah. he set in a new direction? Does this mean no more Atari NFTs? What's the idea? Let's not get crazy, Neil. <laughs> Atari, Atari would have to be foolish to discontinue their NFT scheme. Um, how else are they going to separate so many fools from their money? True, true. So we're at least going to get out of blockchain then. That, that's going to be crushed. Uh, no, they're, they're, <laughs> they're keeping that too. So, uh, yeah, what's, what's the CAO got to say about himself then? What's going to change here? <laughs> well, Anything? <laughs> they're officially leaving the casino business, Neil. <laughs> They've had oh, enough. Right. Okay. They've had enough. <laughs> um, Some might argue and, that's gaming. That was the only yeah, game. That, that, that may be the closest thing they had to gaming. I don't know. But uh, what they're doing is they, I guess they're, they're siloing all of their, their side hustles. I mean, their, their side businesses. So that means that the blockchain people and the NFT people, they'll be separated out from the gaming division. And uh, speaking of their gaming division, I think this is where the most heartening news comes in. Uh, according to the interview with Wade, uh, Atari is going to spend its gaming energies less on, free to on the free-to-play mobile market, and they're going to put more time and effort into high-quality console and PC releases. 
Excellent. Well, for anyone who was just watching there, they would have enjoyed my microphone falling off the stand and me furiously <laughs> screwing it back on. But we're back now. We're back just in time. So um, IPs then. Atari obviously famous for a lot of classic old games. Uh, are we going to see new IPs? What, what's the plan there? Heck no. Heck no, Neil. This is Atari. They're focused on that almighty back catalog of hits. Uh, now, before you turn the dial to the right and listen to the next podcast, I don't think that this is an entirely bad idea. Uh, after all, if you look at some of the hottest indie games of all time, think something like uh, Geometry Wars, Crossy Road, something like that, they're based on gameplay concepts that Atari pioneered. So if Atari can get in there and release high quality updated versions of their classic games with some additional modes and quality of life improvements, uh, I think that would actually please almost everybody. Uh, after all, wouldn't it be cool to play an updated version of Paperboy, you know, in HD? Uh, they've already released a game called Centipede Recharged, which I haven't gotten a chance to play yet, but it looks like from the video it's doing for Centipede what Pac-Man Championship Edition DX did for Pac-Man, where it takes the original concept, it deepens it, but it still provides that same pick-up-and-play fun of the original. Uh, Neil, have you had a chance to check out Centipede Recharged yet? I have, I have. And was Paperboy on the N64 not enough of a, an HD oh. update for you? <laughs> I, you? You've just triggered my PTSD, Neil. That's <laughs> one of the worst remakes of all time. <laughs> so, yeah, I've seen this game. And um, it kind of reminds me of that PlayStation 2 and Xbox era where you had uh, arcade remakes. I think you had the Xbox Arcade came in and all of these other things. And it's got that kind of vector style graphics with particles flying all over the place. And everything has a kind of neon fluorescent glow about it, all of the mm -hmm, lines yeah. and the vectors. Uh, and that's not bad. It's just not cutting edge. I've seen a lot of that style before. It, it works. It works, but it's nothing new. Um, I think the news that you've described with the CEO is it, pretty good news. Um, but I would say... It, it, he hasn't gone far enough. I think we've established that. There's nothing wrong with Atari branding being used on hats and T-shirts and pencil cases and all of that good stuff, like you say. Um, but it's got to have some meat on the bone. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier perfectly with your Nintendo example when you said that they really focus on the games and everything else grows out of that. The success grows out of the quality of the games. It's just like, um, just like Ferrari. You know, the Ferrari badge is on on everything. You can buy it on mm -hmm. absolutely everything. And it's uh, it's a prestige uh, brand. If Ferrari suddenly made a people carrier to drop the kids off to school um, for the price of a Ford, then it would completely devalue that brand and, and nobody would be, be buying those hats. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's what Atari need to focus in on. That, that's the sensible decision for me. Celebrate the heritage with some remakes, sure, like they've done here. But ditch all of that other nonsense that they were talking about on Twitter last night and, and that we've seen. Um, pump money into being a cross-platform modern game publisher. And I know that they were a, a game publisher for a, a long time into the modern era. And um, well, it didn't work out for them for whatever reason. But the name still carries a huge amount of weight. Uh, they need to be thinking about the long term and publishing the games now that will be classic in 40 years time like their 40 year old games are that's what they need to be focused on um and use the brand and the and the weight that it has now to attract the developers while it does still have some prestige and, and have some weight to it and developers might still want to associate themselves with it um yeah i just i'm just concerned that the like you are the, the atari name is being seriously abused and i want to see it plucked out of this situation and put in its rightful place and i think Things like NFTs and blockchain and all of that, it just muddies the water about what they're all about. Um, I don't like it, John. I don't know what the solution yeah. is other than games, a focus on the games. Yeah, I mean, it does seem like, you know, we're, we're here again with Atari. They're, they're at a crossroads. Um, they're still a business. They're, they're a business, a big business, trying to stay afloat. Um, but I, I do find it, you know, heartening that their new CEO is at least making an effort to recover their reputation as a high quality games developer, or at least he's talking about it. Um, will they succeed? Will this just be another dismal chapter in Atari's history? Only time will tell. Time will tell. It just feels like they're trying to find a magic bullet. That's how it feels. And I don't think they're going to find it. I think they need to, they need the graft and it's not going to happen with pure luck.
Let's end the story with something a bit happier now, a success story uh, to end the show. And it's all about the much-anticipated Mega 65, which was put up for pre-order recently. They set a price of €666.66, which, of course, is a nod to Steve Jobs and Wozniak's Apple pricing. Mm -hmm. uh, that works out about US$742. The Mega 65, if you don't know, is... Um, it's to the Commodore 64 a bit like what the ZX Spectrum Next was to the original ZX Spectrum. It's an imagining of the next version of the machine, what it would have been like with all of the things that super fans might want added to it. Although in the case of this machine, unlike the Spectrum, the Commodore 65, oh, I just naturally want to say Commodore 64. It sounds hard when yeah. 5 comes out. <laughs> the Commodore 65 was a machine that was in development back in the day. So it does take inspiration from those original specs, even though it didn't come to market. In this case, the Mega 65 is more than 40 times faster than the original C64 while maintaining compatibility. It's got a mechanical keyboard. It's got modern enhancements like an SD card and digital video out. So it makes life nice and easy in the modern day. It's got a really gorgeous wedge-shaped case, which is injection molded with the floppy disk drive built into it. And that was not have been cheap to develop. So it's really nice that they've committed to that for, for the finish. And at its heart is an FPGA chip. And that means updates can be downloaded to um, improve or, or change the behavior of the system quite easily. But that FPGA chip would no doubt have added a huge amount to the cost of the system. It's not an insubstantial price to buy these chips. Um, it's certainly worlds away from that $35 Atari 2600 ornament we were talking about. You know, mm -hmm. this is really, this is for the hardcore. This is not going on your shelf to be looked at. This is not to be used as a daily driver, of course, but when you're putting that kind of money down on it, you should expect to be using it daily for your entertainment or to further your programming skills because you want to develop something for the platform. You, you know, that's a serious chunk of change to put down to just let gather dust. So you're going to be wanting to use this thing. Now, the good news for the project is that the first batch has sold out. Um, it was 400 units, uh, which doesn't seem like a lot given the amount of interest that they have in the project. But when you consider the global supply chain issues that are happening at the moment, it really does make production of anything like this a real tightrope to walk on. Um, there are lead times of 20 to 30 weeks on many components, years on some FPGA chips. So um, I think they've navigated some very rough water as well to, to get 400 out there. Uh, and they are bringing more to market. John, does the Mega 65 appeal to you in any way? No, not even a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, part of the appeal of retro computers to me is, um, well, that they're old. Um, they're, museum they're museum pieces. They're time capsules. Uh, they have a patina about them. Uh, maybe they break down a little. Maybe they break down a lot. Um, using an old computer takes me back to a particular time in a particular place. Um, even if I was never there before, like whenever I fire up my uh, Amiga 1000 or the Amiga 600, uh, I, 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 I pretend that I'm a kid, you know, in, in 1990 in the UK and I'm, I'm, I want to fire up the latest game or something like that. You know, it's part of the experience for me is going, going back in time with these machines. And when you create an alternate future with these machines, uh, I don't have any of that, that warm, fuzzy feeling there. Now, uh, in paying almost a thousand dollars for a new computer that kind of looks like an old computer, um, that just doesn't take me anywhere but to the land of buyer's remorse, Neil. <laughs> um, you know, I'm sure you're not the only one that thinks like that. But there are plenty who have clearly lusted after this device, given how quickly it's sold out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. The Commodore 64, I believe, is, I mean, it's definitely the best-selling retro computer of all time. And it still might be the best-selling computer ever um you know uh it's it's it sold tens of millions of units and uh the fact yeah. that there's 400 people out of those tens of millions that are willing <laughs> to pay you know basically write a blank check for whatever new commodore machine uh is released i think it says more about the law of averages than than anything else but at the same time uh 
I do understand the coolness factor of this thing. It is a very nice looking machine, much like the ZX Next. It's very, very attractive. It's well engineered. If somebody gave me one, I surely wouldn't, I wouldn't turn it away. Um, just the, the, the price tag that this thing is ringing in at uh, makes it a non-starter for me personally, but I fully admit not being the biggest fan of the C64 as a platform in, in, in at all. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not the target market for this, but in, in related, I just can't tell you how much the Mr has killed my excitement for all of these other FPGA products, just like the, the ZX next and the mega 65. I think if the Mr didn't exist, I would be much more enthusiastic about all of these other FPGA products. I mean, with a mystery, you can design and 3D print any case design you want. And at the end of the day, you have the biggest, most popular development platform that's constantly being updated by the brightest minds in the business, who in most cases are doing it for the love of the hobby rather than as part of a profitable business venture. Um, you know, for less than 200 bucks, I've got it sitting right here in front of me, a machine that simulates dozens of computers at the flick of a switch and a few button presses. So I just don't need anything else to scratch my retro computing itch. Maybe, maybe ever again. Hmm. You are presenting here the perfect segue for me to start talking about our own multi-system project there, John, but I'm going to resist. <laughs> I, I, I was resist. wondering if you were going to take the ball and run with it, Neil. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to resist. It's all about the Mega 65. And um, I, I hear what you're saying, uh, but for some people, it's not about jumping around lots of systems. Mm -hmm. Um it's certainly the perfect system to base this project on, given the sales. I, I think you're right. I don't think it was until like the Raspberry Pi came along that anything came close as a microcomputer to selling the numbers that the Commodore 64 did. Mm -hmm. um, huge selling machine. So I'm not surprised at all that the 400 have sold out. Um, they've got another 1,000 coming, uh, which um, I think they're on sale now uh, for, or pre-sale for delivery in Q2 of 2022. So uh, again, navigating those supply chain issues to get that out there. Um, and I've no doubt that they'll sell out as well. Um, but for a lot of people, it's not about jumping about systems. It's about devotion and dedication to their platform of choice. Uh, just as there were lots of ZX Spectrum fans devoted that wanted to get on the next there are with the c64 and their focus is not just the hardware and the reimagining of the hardware it's also about the community that surrounds it and their shared love of that platform and everything that goes with that and i think for those people that community is just as important um as the hardware the people are just as important as the hardware and a community has definitely sprung up around the ZX Spectrum next and it has around the Mega 65. Absolutely. You're, you you make an excellent point that people want to be part of whatever the you know the 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 most up to date version of the you know whatever their platform of choice is and being a part of a community like the ZX Next community. Uh I under I definitely see the the appeal of that feeling like you're part of a club that's bringing the 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 zx brand into you know this 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 new generation and being able to say you are part of that and you're an active member of that community i'm sure the exact same thing is going on right now with the mega 65 um i don't discount that at all and and i don't fault those people at all either even though this thing isn't for me um i i think there is value there's a tremendous amount of value in platforms like the zx next and the mega 65 and uh and i I'm happy that those things exist for sure. And there's also an element of hope. I mean, nobody's kidding themselves going, oh, I hope this becomes a, a Windows or an Apple Mac killer and becomes the next big thing. But it's just hope for um, their platform of choice to have a future uh, and not right. be lost to the mists of nostalgia uh, over time. Right. Here's new hardware that's going to last for years. Uh, there's new stuff being developed for it. I can be a part of that whole movement and um probably enjoy it for the rest of our lives given the age that we are sure <laughs> so uh, absolutely i think there's an element of that involved as well so when you take all that into mind uh it's not necessarily uh money badly spent it's not necessarily that expensive it, it just depends what you're going to do with it are you going to be committed and dedicated to it if so you will get your money's worth i think so if you are listening and you back to the mega 65 i'd like to know what your plans are for it why did you buy it why did you back it do you have buyer's remorse as John might have done if he'd put his money down on it? 
um, let us know over on our subreddit. We'd love to hear. Neil, our community question of the week last week was, are there any special purpose applications you're still using on your 8 or 16-bit micro? And we got some great answers, Neil. Looks like yes. The answer is a resounding yes. Um, uh, subreddit user headers D writes, I still use Pipe Dream on my Cambridge Z88. It's a surprisingly effective note-taking device. Um, Neil, I have no idea what this thing is. Tell me, what is a Cambridge Z88? Well, when you said Pipe Dream, I thought, well, that's a puzzle game. But obviously right. not. I, I'm not familiar with this piece of software. Uh, a Cambridge Z88 is a Z80-based computer. That's all I can tell you about it, John. Do you want me to look okay. it up? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Sheepitina says, I listen to my own chiptune music on a Game Boy to make sure it sounds right on real hardware. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a great application. There's nothing, no matter what you make in an emulator, there's nothing quite like the feeling of hearing it or seeing it um, on real hardware uh, and making sure it actually behaves as it should. Um, the Cambridge Z88 is uh, a portable computer from 1987. Um, little keyboard with a probably a two or three character row screen at the top. So one of those okay. very, very little computers almost like a, a super calculator if you like with a z80 yeah there's a there's a around. there's a um a tandy computer at the trs model 100 i believe That's that right. is it yeah. sounds sounds similar to that very much like that so they're obviously using a piece of software called pipe dream on there to do what what was it they said they did with pipe dream note taking note taking yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, headers did say for bonus points he gets to feel like Douglas Adams and really confuse the millennials who work for him. So there you go. <laughs> and finally, Neil Super Cruiser Five Thousand says still use Amos to use uh, to do some bodgy coding and bust out some pics with Vista Pro on the A twelve hundred. Oh, that's a good combination. Vista Pro for your fractal landscapes. Amos for uh, loading in the images or the animations, whatever you're doing right. with it. Um, not necessarily retro because Amos is kind of still in development, albeit under a different name. Um, yeah, yeah, but I think that since he's using it on an 8 or 16-bit micro, it's still, it still true. counts. True, yeah. All right, Neil, our next question of the week for next week is... And I can't wait to I can't wait to read some of these responses. What should Atari do to salvage their brand? So Ooh, please yeah. post your responses in the subreddit and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. Don't hold back. We'll turn off the profanity filter for this one. <laughs> <laughs> this week in retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.